Welcome to Nahum Connections Podcast, Voices in Patient Access. Here, industry experts contribute their voices about popular patient access topics, including career development and leadership, revenue cycle operations, healthcare regulations, and the patient experience. If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review where you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Nahum Connections Podcast. I'm Morgan Mangara, Managing Editor of Nahum's Access Management Journal and Nahum Connections, and your podcast host. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Susan Milligan, Patient Experience Director for Ensemble Health Partners, and Tom Toll, Chief Experience Officer for Ballad Health, who will walk through real-life examples of patient comments, both the good and the not-so-good, and share strategies for providing an optimal patient experience. Listeners, you're in for an engaging conversation from these leaders. Susan and Tom, welcome to the Nahum Connections podcast. Hi, Morgan. Thanks for having us. Hey, Morgan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you both. So before diving into our conversation, I'd like to hear about each of you and your careers. Susan, you were our very first guest on the Nahum Connections podcast. So welcome back. Would you like to start and catch us up on how you've been? Absolutely. Thanks, Morgan. I'm really excited to be back. And so much has happened since that very first podcast on empathy. The entire world has had to adapt to this new normal, virtual school, working from home, masking. And I have been spending my time between on-site visits with our frontline staff to support patient experience and employee engagement efforts and at home to develop new education that brings awareness to and mitigates burnout from all of these changes. Plus, Tom and I have been building our network of patient experience professionals so we can collaborate and get stronger as an industry overall. And then, of course, spending a lot of time with family, doing a lot of virtual learning and things of that nature. And right now in Cincinnati, just enjoying some of the snow we just got. Thanks, Susan. Glad to hear things are going well there. And Tom, how about you? Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. I'm Tom Todd, the Chief Experience Officer for Ballot Hill, and we're an integrated health system located in Northeast Tennessee in Southwest Virginia. And it has been a real pleasure working with Susan. As she mentioned, we've been busy trying to build not only our network of patient experience professionals, but been busy trying to have conversations with our frontline folks and our leaders about the changing dynamics that are going on right now. We're going to talk a lot about that today because I think that When we look at the environment today versus the environment six months ago, two years ago, it is so totally different. And our excess folks really set the stage, but it's for the entire visit. So we'll talk more about that, but it's a pleasure to be with you all today. Well, thanks, Tom. We're excited to have you both with us today. So let's get started. Susan and Tom, today you're going to share some real life examples of patient comments. For those who may not be familiar, can you share some background about patient comments? What are they? What are they used for? And how do they affect the patient access team? Absolutely. You know, first, let's talk about what patient experience is. We've adopted the definition of patient experience from the Barrel Institute, and they define it as the sum of all interactions shaped by an organization's culture that influence patient perceptions across the continuum of care. In short, patient experience is everything. So organizations do their best to gather feedback via surveys that allow patients to rate hospitals and leave comments about their time with us. The scores are important, but honestly, the comments about their time with us 
are incredible. Those comments are about our reputation in the community. And they're my favorite part because it's not just about the organization's reputations, but it's about our individual reputations. These are the stories people are telling about us and the interactions we've had. So it's a critical piece of the patient's experience. And Susan, just to piggyback on that, you know, one of our tenants at Ballot Health is it's your story we're listening. And I think when you're to your point, when you read those patient comments, you get so much more information from the patient on what they were thinking, hearing, smelling, feeling. And that's when you can really start to make improvements. Quantitative is great, but you cannot replace that qualitative information that we get from patient comments. And sometimes they do hurt a little bit, but they are always pretty instructive. Thank you both for sharing that background. After two years apart, the Nahum Annual Conference is back in person, May 10th through 13th in San Diego. We are thrilled to safely gather to collaborate, provide advice, share new trends and technology, and embrace the future of patient access together. Plus, you have the opportunity to earn 40 Nahum approved contact hours. Can't join us in person? You can still participate by purchasing the Learning Lab On Demand package, granting you access to 24 Learning Labs and 30 hours toward your certification. For more information on how to attend, the schedule of events, and how to register, visit naham.org slash naham2022 annual conference. We'll see you in May. So in your roles, you both clearly value the patient experience. So can you tell us a little more about why it's so important for patient access leaders to have a patient experience network to rely on? You know, driving patient experience scores is really challenging, and organizations can go through similar challenges. And so when you build a network and you share ideas, you can get to improvements faster, and that benefits both the patient and our employees. I think it helps to know that other people are going through the same thing that you're going through as well. And so when we think about another facility or someone across the country who perhaps tried something that resonated with patients when they came in, then you can have improvements faster. The other cool part about that is we're not in this alone. In that old adage of misery loves company, it's not that it's misery, but folks like to know other people are going through this and, and they learn from the other successes and they also share their, their issues and their concerns and it just helps. Sometimes it's cathartic. Absolutely. It sounds like you have a great community to lean on in that respect. Like what you hear on Naham Connections podcast? Visit naham.org slash Naham Connections to catch up with the latest patient access content and insights from patient access professionals and industry experts. So now, Susan and Tom, I'd like to turn the floor over to you to share and dissect patient comment examples. Please take it away. So first, I'd like to say that when Tom and I shared we would be doing this podcast, colleagues flooded us with comments, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and every one of them was powerful, but we couldn't use them all. So we picked some that aligned with industry themes to bring awareness to specific challenges that we might all be facing. So our first comment. The experience as a whole was horrific. The waiting room was crowded. One man came in profusely bleeding, bled all over the floor from his knee, which was literally sliced open. He was not offered a wheelchair or help to a seat. 
a nurse cut off his pant leg and bandaged his knee hastily in the waiting area for all to see. I was queasy from the sight of it. I hope and pray I never have another emergency because it was a three-hour ordeal. Shame on you. You can do better. Susan, when we looked at that comment, we both kind of shrugged our shoulders and thought, oh my gosh. But then when you start to peel it back in today's environment, especially over the last two years, emergency rooms across the country are overcrowded. And so folks come in looking to get their care from our ER. And when you say emergency room, whether it's a true emergency or not, people think it should be fast. So we have a wait for beds. We have backed up emergency rooms. We're providing care in settings that perhaps we never provided the care before. So when I read this, my first thought was, oh, but you know, that poor person who had to watch this. Then the other side of me said, well, you know what? Actually, what they were trying to do was get the care to this man to bandage his leg as expeditiously as possible, even though it wasn't where we might have performed the care in the past. And so when you start to think about what does an emergency room look like today? Susan and I have talked about this. I've talked to colleagues around the country. We're trying to educate folks that the emergency room of today may be a little different from the emergency room of the past. You may check in and you may be triaged or you will be triaged. And then you may be sent back out to the waiting room and you may have chair care or you may have discussions in places that perhaps we might not have planned it to the best, but we still have to do that. Now, at the same time, I read this and I think, oh, there are some things that perhaps we as an industry should have done. Could we have put a screen up? Could we have put a chair behind that screen and offered some sort of privacy for certainly the patient and from the other patients in in the waiting room? Susan, what did you think when you read it? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. You know, I was looking at it kind of the same way you were. I think the very first thing that stood out to me is this patient is actually writing about her experience in our emergency room, but it's not about how we cared for her. It's about how we cared for someone else. And I think it's really important for our teams to understand that it's not just about the patient's experience, it's about everything they experience while they're on our site. And what really had an impact on her, what she felt, what she remembered, what stood out to her is the way this man was treated. And I agree with you. I think there was an ill intent when the nurse came out and tried to get him bandaged up. But I think because we're so busy that we forget some of the basic items of care, and that is privacy. We want them to feel comfortable. We want it to be private. And I just, I, I kind of think, well, you know, the patient access representatives who were there and any, any other nurse or, or clinician who was there and saw that, none of us stopped to say for a moment, what would I want if I were that patient? And could we, you know, have gently walked up to that nurse and say, I appreciate that you're getting out here to do this as quickly as possible, but can we move them over to this area so he has a little bit of privacy? And the fact that he wasn't offered a wheelchair or a seat when he came in and that condition worries me that we're becoming numb to that as an industry, to the basic needs of of our patients as they're walking in. And I think, honestly, we just need to take a deep breath and slow down and really get back to the basics and focus on how we would want to be treated if we were in their position. You know, Susan, there was some research out recently that noted why people choose to recommend a facility. And one of the stats that popped off on the page to me was that 70% of patients assuming good quality care would recommend a facility if they felt they received good customer service. So to your point about we're becoming numb, there's a time in our industry that we might not have ever allowed that. We're tired, we're fatigued, we're numb. And so we're forgetting some of those basics of looking up and smiling and, and just those comforts of, can I get you a chair? Can I make it more comfortable for you? because everyone's so rushed. It was an interesting stat because it was like, oh my gosh, 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think work burnout obviously contributes to that, where we're all feeling overwhelmed by the sheer number of shifts that we're working and the sheer number of patients that we're seeing and how long everything is taking to be completed. But I think we also forget sometimes that our patients are going through that work burnout too. I think it's not just unique to healthcare. I think it's it's in retail, right? It's in food industries. It's it's everywhere you look today because of the pandemic. And I think it's critical for us to remember that when that patient comes in and they're angry about a mask or they're, you know, they're angry about the fact that they can't have a support person with them, they're not angry about the mask. They're not angry, just angry about the support person not being able to come with them. They're angry about the overall lack of control they have on things these days and everything that we've been through and the way they might be treated at work and the lack of sleep they may have had and the double shifts they've been working. And so I think we just need to change our focus and shift it to the positives that are coming from this and that teams are getting closer together and we're getting stronger and we will come out of this ahead of the game. Yeah, I agree. Hey, that leads me to another comment that we looked at and it kind of piggybacks on that. So the comment was, I was very surprised with the RN that did our check-in. She was very short and inconsiderate with the injury to my son's hand. I tried to explain he had caught his finger in a car door and he was in pain, but she continued to tear tape and gauze off his finger in a really non-compassionate way in front of a full lobby. The lady behind me stared in disbelief. I would have expected the face of the emergency room to be someone with a caring and understanding attitude. My only excuse for her attitude was she was overwhelmed with being in healthcare, but I would definitely not want her at the front desk. And it goes back to what you just said, where people are just fatigued. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's really important that as leaders that we're caring for our teams, as peers, we're caring for our teams. We know when we're giving our best. You know, Tom and I work together often. And, and if we're not at our best, we feel really comfortable saying to each other, do you need to step away for a moment and, you know, and get yourself together, regain your composure. And I think we just, we need to make that something that is more broadly used in healthcare. It's not a negative if somebody is trying to say, hey, step away for a moment. I can see that you're you're just burnt out and you're exhausted. Take a minute. You know, let's let's start using some more code lavenders. You know, in healthcare, a lot of organizations have started code lavenders where you're actually calling in pastoral care to sit with associates and help them over the hump of some of the challenges we experience because we experience death and we experience struggle and and just so many traumatic things that we need to be taking care of each other. And I think if we did more of that, we'd see less of these types of comments. Yeah, I agree with you. You The other thing I think that we need to think about as an industry is the length of our shifts. Because at one time working an eight-hour shift or 10-hour shift or 12-hour shift um, seemed a little palatable. But because of the fatigue factor, not just of our team members, but the fatigue factor of, of our patients and families, shorter shifts may help. Because I've noticed, I'm sure you have too, Susan, that over time, towards the end of a shift, people get shorter. And they're just, again, they're just fatigued. We can't blame them. So maybe we need to start being creative in how we schedule our folks. I agree completely. You know, I was just facilitating a course on de-escalation techniques in South Carolina last week. And as part of that course, I asked our team members, can you guarantee with 100% certainty that the first four hours of your 40 or 50 or 60 hour week were as exceptional as your last four hours of that week. And every single person said no. And so by the end of that time, at the end of those long shifts, at the end of those long weeks, you can tell that they're exhausted and they're feeling it. And 
honestly, the patients suffer for that and our teams suffer as well. You know, when you look at long wait times in the ER, again, that same report that talked about the 70% customer service, if the second thing that was um, important was communication and being updated, and I found it interesting that if we were empathetic and talking to our patients about wait times and we kept them updated, they still gave us, or we, research says they gave us a higher score if we could do that, even if they waited six hours for those patients that never felt they got an update. So they checked in and they were just sent off to this bastion of waiting. Their scores were in the lower quartile. And so it goes back to just remember how you would want to be treated there. If you're in an emergency room or you're checking in for an outpatient procedure, you really want to know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. In that white space, I think people just get so frustrated when they sit in the white space and there's nothing. Absolutely. And you know what? That brings me to one of our other comments specific to patient access professionals. This comment said a number of patients that were waiting for discharge papers were all called into a dirty room with a few chairs and were called on one by one to provide personal information. This was done in the hallway outside of the room, which was not private at all. This could have been done while we were all waiting, not as we were all trying to leave. Obviously, there is much room for improvement on this process. And when I read that, I really thought, my gosh, anytime I'm at a hospital, whether I'm at an outpatient clinic appointment or in an emergency room situation, when they finally say it's time to go, I am ready to go. You know, imagine our patients have been waiting in an ED waiting room for hours and they finally have been seen and they said, okay, we're going to get you out of here. And then before we can discharge them, they have to go through processes that probably should have done prior to that conversation. And that is so frustrating when people are just exhausted and you think about the physical state they could be in and the emotional state that they could be in. They just want to go home at this point. Yeah, they really do. And even if from the inpatient setting, when we say it's time to go home, they want to go home and all that information that we still provide them. You know, back to the notion of providing personal information in a crowded area. In today's environment, when so many people are concerned or leery about somebody else getting their private information, whether it's their address, their phone number, or their social, or something from their credit card, or their medical record number, we as an industry have got to do better. We've got to remove the bus station registration areas. We've got to remove the discharge as a group, because all we're really doing is just making the patient that much more uncomfortable. And if you remember back to that book, Moments, you know, we talk about there are high moments and low moments in any experience that we have. And those high moments are the ones we tend to remember. Well, the low moments we may remember as well. And if there are too many low moments, then we're going to have a negative experience. A low moment is you're uncomfortable. We made you feel bad. We, we didn't listen to you. We treated you with less than respect. And the notion that we didn't take into consideration the patient's privacy, while we may not think about it, to them, it is an issue. And a lot of people don't want to have that information shared. Absolutely. Privacy is definitely key. And that's something we see in patient experience comments all the time. You know, I don't think we can end with our ugly, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly comments without first discussing the fact that in healthcare, we sometimes get jaded. And, and when that happens, when we get burnout, it can lead to judgment. And there was a comment that was sent to us that was just heartbreaking to me because I know that I have overheard conversations like this and have had to address them in my experiences. And and Tom, I'm certain you've probably been through the same thing. But this comment said, the nurses were extremely rude and mean. Yes, I came in as an overdose patient, but I didn't overdose on fentanyl. 
I had defecated on myself and the nurses were so rude and were actually laughing at me. They threw my clothes away without permission and my pants were $75. They literally laughed in a group in the hallway at me while I was laying there soiled and freezing. It was an absolute nightmare, horrible experience. I was literally thrown in a room, given a few shots and left for the time I slept. Thank God my family came. The nurses had a horrible bedside manner because I was an overdose patient. I was a mess and they were mad and rude because they had to clean me up. I could have gotten a shower to be rinsed off, but they didn't even attempt to help me. So Susan, I, um, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I had very similar thoughts of you read that and you just kind of shake your head and you, you put your head in your hands. And I get it. When we have folks who come into our emergency rooms or our facilities and maybe they are frequent and they have issues that they are seeking medications or they're seeking something that they don't need or we, we make those value judgments, we, um, we're wrong in making those value judgments. This didn't happen in my organization, but I was with another organization and ER folks, and they, they labeled these individuals that came in all the time and were just either quote-unquote drug seekers as trolls. And I thought my head was going to spin because my thought was, you know, what we're talking about is a patient with needs and whether or not it's an appropriate use of our emergency room, the patient still has a need. So if we treat them less this than courteously or with respect, or we don't try to assist them, that need is going to always be there. And so I think as an industry, we need to figure out how can we invest more in their behavioral health issues? How can we get more out, out front so that we don't have folks who are coming in and seeking that type of care in the emergency room? Because it does clog up our ERs because there aren't enough places to send patients who need these services. At the same time, irregardless, I think it's inexcusable for us to treat anyone less than respectful. And if I were laying there in that situation, I would want someone to help me. And help me means making me feel human and making me feel like a real person. Absolutely. I mean, human dignity and respect is the cornerstone of healthcare, right? Treating everyone like they are entitled to the same kind of care and the same kind of treatment, regardless of why they're being seen or what they look like or what they sound like or even how they're behaving in that moment. They all should be treated with human dignity and respect. And, you know, it's interesting, Tom, that you mentioned how we we judge people based on why they're being seen often. Recently, I was speaking with a group of professionals and I was reminding them because everybody gets frustrated when someone uses an emergency department as a PCP. And you always hear those stories about, oh, my gosh, they came in via ambulance for a pregnancy test. And so I really was talking to these leaders and explaining that sometimes people call an ambulance to come in for a pregnancy test because that is the product of the environment in which they grew up. That's what they learned as children to do. That's what their parents taught them, and they don't know how to do it any other way. And sometimes people use an ambulance to come in to a hospital because they don't have transportation and they don't have anybody that they can call or rely on to get them there. And sometimes they call an ambulance to come in for a pregnancy test because they can't afford a pregnancy test anywhere else. And, you know, many states actually require a formal pregnancy test from a hospital or a PCP before you can start applying for assistance, for medical assistance. And Without that, without them coming in to get that piece, they can't start getting prenatal care and they can't start having care 
for that child once they're born. And so there is reasoning behind these choices sometimes. And I think through compassion and empathy and education on what else can be done, we can help with that. Yeah. And we can look at it with a different perspective. So you, you said a couple of things that I, I think bear worth um, bringing out before we start talking about some positive comments. And one of those was the social determinants of health. If we can get ahead of some of those issues that are community-based and look at either transportation opportunities or availability or look at ability to pay, you're actually 100% correct. A lot of people will come to the ER because it is common knowledge that if I show up at the ER, I am going to be seen and I'm not going to be asked for perhaps money up front until at least I've been triaged and it's, it's no longer an emergency. And so we need to remember that when folks are in that situation, there's something that put them there. And so we start to think about, is it a socioeconomic issue? Is it a transportation issue? Is it an education issue? Then I think we can start to get ahead of that curve and that pipeline. And it's something that a lot of organizations, mine included, are putting a lot of efforts right now in the whole notion of community-based and population health. How can, we, how can we get ahead of that, the social determinants? The other thing, though, that as I was reading your comment, again, when you mentioned this, and this didn't hit me before, but I think it bears noting, you know, the comment about they literally laughed at a group in the hallway. Those folks in the hallway may not have been laughing at this patient or about this patient, but there were something else was going on and they were laughing. And so the patient, again, in the white space, assumed that they were laughing at them about whatever was going on. And so I tell folks all the time, we've got to be very careful because if they hear it, they're going to interpret whatever they hear in their filter. And that laughter may have been a funny joke, it may have been whatever, but when I hear laughter, then it spills over. And so I think, especially on our, uh, our patient access folks who are sitting in waiting rooms and they're, they're kind of in a fishbowl. You got folks in your waiting room who are wanting to be seen and to them it's an emergency. They're waiting to get back, but they see our patient access folks just living life. And that's what they should be able to do. It's not that they have to be actively busy all the time, but to the patient and that consumer in the waiting room, we have to be careful what they're hearing and seeing us do. Absolutely. And, you know, the very definition of patient experience states that it's about perceptions. It's not always about reality. And so what behaviors can we change to provide more positive perceptions for our patients? And just so we we have something happy to end on, when you think about judging and, and why people are using EDs, if we would really just sit back and start to think about how can we change that? Just like you were saying, how can we get ahead of these challenges to make some positive behavior changes, I can tell you that if teams work together, we can solve these problems. We actually had a healthcare system in Ohio who recognized that sometimes homeless population was coming in to be seen, and it wasn't that they were ill. It wasn't that they really needed to be seen. What they needed was food. They were starving, and they knew that if they came in to be seen, that they would be fed. And so they actually started tracking how many of these individuals were coming into the emergency department and they actually launched a food pantry within their emergency department of non-perishable food. And so when, when this population came in, they first offered them some food and it turns out that less than half of them after having something to eat realized they didn't need to be seen. They started just coming in for some food and not having to actually be seen because they weren't sick. They were really hungry. They didn't have what they needed to sustain. So it was interesting. So teams can, teams can solve those problems. 
Looking to grow your skill set and stature within patient access profession? Consider NAHAM's Certified Healthcare Access Associate or Certified Healthcare Access Manager, the only patient access certifications that meet NCCA standards. Showcase your knowledge, problem-solving abilities, and dedication to your career by becoming NAHAM Certified. Visit certification.naham.org to learn more. So let's go into some positive comments. Yes, let's do. What was your favorite positive comment that we received? Yeah, I think my favorite positive comment was she was the sweetest person. If it wasn't for her care and concern, I would have signed myself out. She was very nice to my family who were very upset. Oh, I love that one too. I think it's important that we understand that patients bring someone with them to the hospital for one of two reasons. They either bring someone with them because they themselves as a patient are caring for that person, like a parent might bring a child, or they bring someone with them because they as the patient need that person there for support. And it doesn't matter why that other person is there. What matters is the way we treat them because that is what's going to stand out to the patient when we send out these surveys. And this patient wrote a comment about how we treated her family, not as much about how we treated her, but it was about how we treated the individuals that came with her. So all of those moments matter. Yeah, I do think I laughingly say that healthcare is a team sport. So it's a team sport from everyone who's providing it. And that's, you know, from patient access to the nurses, to the techs, to the physicians. But it's also a team sport for that support network that comes to the hospital. And in so many instances, when folks have to go, especially to an emergency room or to the hospital, they don't just bring one person with them. They bring what I call the block party. And that block party is so important to the patient. And so as we start to think about how we put our hands around that and manage that, and certainly during the pandemic, that's been one of our huge challenges is how do you how do you look at a patient who's coming in and we need to have a COVID test and they've got someone with them, they can have one person with them, but then all of a sudden they don't have the block party. And so that concern for that one person and helping them with information so they can share with that support network is, is important. I, I agree with you, Susan. I think one of the hallmarks of that comment was that we cared about the total person and their support network, not just the patient and the task at hand. What was your favorite positive comment? Oh, I really love this one. It said, our nurse was amazing. My son is still talking about how much he liked her because she was nice and she played with him. She responded quickly, was super nice, and explained everything to a degree that my son understood. He was also blown away by her kindness. And honestly, to get a comment where a child is still talking about their experience to the parents after the fact is just exceptional to me. And so clearly this nurse was doing something. She was getting on that child's level, and she was really caring about him in the moment and making sure that he was taken care of. Too often, we spend time talking to the parents and forgetting that that patient actually has an opinion and has thoughts and has fears, too. And so I think anytime you can get down to that level and really hit home with them is just a phenomenal experience. You know, also, that reminds me of the opposite age of that age spectrum. You know, oftentimes, if you go in with that elderly patient, we will forget that the elderly patient is in the room and we'll have the conversation with the support person as opposed to the elderly patient. And one of the things that I've read in comment after comment is, I love it on the negative side is I wish they would have acknowledged me as a patient, not just the person who was with me. And obviously that means that we we failed to have the conversation with that elderly person who is still a person, still cognizant, still wants to be in control. You mentioned control earlier, have a sense of control for their care. 
So I absolutely, no matter the age range, whether it's young or old or, you know, impaired, we have patients in our facilities who come in with some sort of either a hearing impairment or a visual impairment. And we need to always be cognizant of how we include them in that comment as well. So I, I loved that comment about getting on the level. Hey, here's another one that I thought was kind of neat. And it goes along with what we've talked about a little bit in terms of just that team sport. But it says your medical staff from your ER attending to the PA, to the nurse, to the receptionist are outstanding. But wow, your system seems overwhelmed by a broad variety of those seeking help. Best wishes under trying circumstances. And I think when and we read that, we've talked about the pandemic and the overcrowding, but that whole notion of communication and one of those key drivers for a patient to say they had a great experience is the staff work together for their care. So think about how that communication must have been. Did you see that one, Susan? I did. And I love that one too, because again, the hospitals that actually work collectively as a team are the most successful. There shouldn't be silos. It should be seamless to the patients. It should be seamless to the staff. We should all be working together to do one thing, and that is care for that patient and make sure that they receive everything they need during their time with us. So I love that one too. And you know, the other one that I really loved was this one. This staff is beyond awesome. I will always go to this hospital for all of my needs as I trust no other hospital in the area to perform at the same level. I feel safe in their care during my worst times. And when I read that, I was blown away. What an amazing compliment to an organization that you feel safe in their care during your worst times. I mean, I don't think that there is a compliment that is stronger than that one when you're talking about safety. And when you think about just the whole notion of medicine, the notion of first do no harm, you know, we train our medical providers with that phrase is first do no harm. And one of the greatest fears I think of patients coming in is that, am I going to be safe? Am I going to get the right care? Am I going to be free from that infection? Am I going to be exposed to COVID? Am I going to have folks who, who have the accurate information? Are they going to know about me? And so I agree, Susan, safety is so important. And it's interesting that what she said, this person said was, I feel safe in their care. And so if they feel safe, then it means that we've hit a home run and we have communicated well and we have worked together well and we have given them information and they feel like they're ready to go on to that next level of care, whether it's discharged home or going to the hospital. And if they feel safe with us, we've treated them with courtesy and respect. We've used empathy. We truly have treated them as an individual. I, I, yeah, I agree. I like that one too. You scored on that one. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, for that sure. organization's very lucky to have that in one of their comments for sure. Yeah, I am. Hey, you know, the other one that I thought was really cool, the comments that we read was, my wife was with me the entire time except for the x-ray. We were both impressed with the care given. I believe they were short-staffed, but care was excellent. And I like that for so many reasons. Yeah, no doubt. You know, we always tell our, our team members, you know, you want to make sure that you're not oversharing with patients. They should never know that we're short-staffed, right? If they recognize it on their own, that's one thing. But if we tell them, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I'm so it's been so long to get to you because we're short-staffed, that creates a different perception than if they notice it on their own. But I love that they took the time to write that comment, knowing that this organization may have been short-staffed and they still had a great experience and actually feeling I think feeling some empathy of their own for our teams is a really nice plus in that comment. Yeah. And it looks like that we, much like the previous comment was, we recognize the importance of that support person 
to be with the patient because they could be calming and they could be there to help them through this process. And then that they, when they said they were most impressed, both impressed with the care, you know, oftentimes you can do something to me, but if you do something to my loved one, I'm going to come after you kind of concept. And so if both were impressed, then again, to your point, we, we did treat them with courtesy and respect and they noticed what was going on. And we recognized that it is back to that team sport. I think anytime Absolutely. we have, anytime we have a, um, a patient comment that thanks an organization for the level of care, then we must have done something right. We must have communicated well. We must have treated them with courtesy and respect and empathy because no one wants to be in the emergency room. No one wants to be in the hospital. And so when they come in with all those fears that they have, if we're able to make them feel safe and cared about and cared for, then our team has done an amazing job. And it is every person on that team, everything that happens from the time they drive into our parking lot to the time they get home and they get a post-discharge phone call is a part of that care process. And it has the propensity to go right or go wrong. And oftentimes we focus on just those key moments of here's your care. But really that care is that entire continuum. It goes back to what you said earlier, Susan, the, the barrel definition of patient experience being that continuum it's everything is the whole ball of wax. And we have to remember that as we're talking to our frontline individuals. Absolutely. And, you know, I think organizations have to remember, to your point, that it's not always just the patient filling out the survey. Sometimes the person who accompanied them to the hospital are actually helping them complete the survey. So if we miss the mark with one of them, we're still going to hear about it later. So it's just best to get in front of that and treat everyone with the respect and the courtesy and the empathy that we talked about throughout this entire podcast. Yeah. You know, the best form of healthcare marketing is word of mouth. And so if we think about just our patient comments we're talking about today, surely most of these came from patient experience surveys, but by and large, so many patient comments are out there now on social media. And so someone posts about their experience and it causes someone else to post and someone else to post. And they start posting all these comments about what either what went right or what went wrong. And oftentimes I wish they would, would, well, a lot. I wish they would talk about what went right because so much goes right every day. But we tend to just to mention those things that went wrong. And so it is everybody. And when you read a patient comment, and even if you're talking to our team and they say, well, that wasn't the patient. That was the, the spouse who came in or that was the visitor who came in. My comment has always been, does it make you feel any better if it was a poor comment because it wasn't the patient? It was still a human being. Absolutely. You know, we always say at the end of some of our education sessions, what kind of stories are people telling about you? Because you get to decide what kind of story they're going to tell. Are you going to lead with empathy or are you going to lead with judgment? Make the right choice. That is awesome. You just say that again. <laughs> so. Wow, thank you both for such an engaging discussion. As we wrap up our episode, what is one step patient access professionals can take today to apply these takeaways to create an optimal patient experience? So for me, I would say start a discussion. Share your comments with your teams and huddles, use patient testimonials, and then ask your team how we can change our patient's perception if the comment was negative and or how we can maintain that positive perception if the experience was positive. So many leaders print the comments and they hang them on a the wall. And honestly, it's shown to be ineffective. Conversations create really great brainstorming sessions and really great best practice sharing. So build your network and have the discussions. 
So I guess for me, Morgan, I'm going to piggyback on several things that Susan said is we do need to start the conversation. We need to have those conversations with our team members and talk about the positives and celebrate those. And then where there are opportunities, it's not an indictment. It's an opportunity to make it better. And so, you know, as we start to think about if there are questions about the care or the registration process, did we narrate that to the patient? Did we help them understand what was going on? Um, if we knew we we're going to have a long wait time, did we say, we are so glad you're here. We're going to take good care of you. There's a lot of patients here tonight, but no worry. We are here for you. It gets back to that. We're going to keep you safe. And then we're going to narrate what's going on. I think that the elimination of that white space and helping our, our access of individuals understand the key role they play in being a communication conduit is so very important. When our folks get testy and, and they, they fail to provide that experience, um, many times it's not them, it's the process. And so as an organization, we have an obligation to figure out what about the process has failed. So when we go through those comments and, and look at the comments, um, it's, I ask yourself the question, is it process? Before we ever ask ourselves the question, is it person? And then the last thing I'm going to leave you with is what my good friend and colleague Susan just said, is you get to decide what impression, what story they're going to tell. It is totally up to you. I love that. Thanks, Tom. Well, Susan and Tom, thank you so much again for joining us today to share your expertise and your passion for the patient experience. The conversation continues on Naham Connections. For more content specific to patient experience and engagement, visit naham.org slash nahamconnections. That's N-A-H-A-M dot org slash N-A-H-A-M connections. Plus, Naham members can access a library of on-demand education featuring a breadth of trending topics. Visit naham.org slash webinars on demand to start learning. Not a member, but interested in taking advantage of these valuable resources? Join Naham to arm yourself with community knowledge and resources as you face obstacles in your daily work. Naham offers the year-round education and knowledge you need to help navigate the unexpected. Visit naham.org slash naham membership to become a member. That's naham.org slash naham membership. Thank you to everyone listening today. Until next time.